First, though, some good news for anybody who has loved ones in long-term care, for people who are living in long-term care, who are missing their loved ones. That's coming up on the program. We also got a bit of good news when it comes to the vaccine timeline in this province. If we if we look at just Moderna and Pfizer and what uh, the amounts that were um, scheduled to receive, you know, assuming everything goes as planned, it will actually be mid-July. But with the addition of, of uh, AstraZeneca and uh, perhaps soon uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as well, um, we may be able to move that up. So I was probably slightly over-optimistic, but we are looking at July. July for everybody in BC who wants a vaccination to be getting that first dose. Let's bring in Christine Sorensen, president with the BC Nurses Union. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, glad to be here, Jill. Thank you. I know nurses are a key part of the vaccine rollout. How confident are you with that timeline? And that was Dr. Henry being asked because I think she had actually said June uh, for everybody getting that first dose and then went back to say, well, with the the vaccine rollout, uh, still pretty confident that it would be July. Well, I would say that we share the optimism. We're quite excited to see this vaccine rolling out and hoping that we can get vaccine into as many people's arms as quickly as possible. Um, But we do need to understand that this is a a very complex endeavor. Uh, There's a lot of work that's going to be put in place in the next four months to roll out vaccine to nearly four to five million British Columbians in a very short period of time. So uh, we understand that there's a lot of work to be done going forward. Uh, and what role do you think uh, nurses obviously playing a role do do we have the staff as far as uh, where we know there will be vaccination clinics uh, will it be various locations these these va- uh, mass clinics that we're being told about uh, do you think do we have the nursing uh, the staffing levels uh, to be able to do this well i think we have to remember that you know a number of people are going to be needed to complete this rollout not just nurses so we will be working with other healthcare professionals probably volunteers, other people who are not healthcare professionals, uh, as we look to move the amount of vaccine around, set up clinics, the administrative work that needs to be done to register and and move people through the clinics, as well as uh, for the actual process of drawing up and administering the vaccine. Uh, You know, and we are still in a significant nursing shortage in this province. And nurses have been doing everything they can to support all of the ministry directives uh, around everything related to the pandemic, including contact tracing, uh, caring of patients who are positive for COVID, uh, and all of the other things that this entails. Uh, So we are wanting to participate and support this. We're pretty stretched thin right now, though. What about the uh, the idea of other groups being uh, part of this as well? I know dentists in this province are being told they can step forward and participate in the various uh, ways of giving vaccination. Do you think there will be other health professionals that will also be able to to step forward? So it's not as though it's all going to fall on uh, the uh, to the nurses. Well, absolutely. I mean, at this point, we already deliver flu vaccination through nurses. Uh, physicians and pharmacists. So we do know that there are other providers. Uh, Nurses are obviously wanting help. We can't do this alone. Uh, So there are other uh, healthcare providers and other people uh, in emergency services who give injections also who could be safely uh, educated, trained to be able to give this vaccine. Uh, So we are going to need to utilize everyone who has the skills and ability and willingness to participate in this program um, because it will be a, a lot of work 
uh, and we need to figure out how to safely and effectively get as much vaccine into people's arms as quickly as possible. Uh, how difficult is it or, or what kind of process is it to get somebody to that point that they can deliver a vaccine? Because it's it's not like, and I know uh, anybody that draws blood will say there's an art to it. Some people are very good at it, um, not everybody, but, uh, you know, drawing blood is a very specific skill, whereas giving a vaccine doesn't seem, at least uh, on the surface, doesn't seem like it would be as complicated. Uh, yes, I think that's an interesting question. I'm a public health nurse and have been giving vaccines for over 30 years of my career. Uh, and I think people focus uh, on the needle, the injection, the actual portion there, and don't really understand uh, how complex the process is behind the scenes. Uh, it is around storage of vaccine, making sure that that vaccine is safely kept at all times, the, the correct dose is drawn up, uh, that it's used in a timely manner, that we actually get informed consent uh, from the vaccine recipients so that they actually have all their questions answered about this vaccine, uh, what side effects they can experience, uh, when their next dose will be, all of the questions they may have, as well as what happens if there's complications following, what if I have side effects. Uh, We also have to manage uh, needle anxiety, uh, and that's a big part of the role of the person who's providing giving the vaccine. Uh, And then there is the simple landmarking and making sure we're giving this uh, in people's arms correctly. And not everybody has big, strong, muscly arms to give this into. So we do have to sort of figure out how to make sure we do this effectively and safely. Uh, And so it is a complex process. It isn't just simply, um, you know, putting a needle in somebody's arm. Uh, There is a lot of work that goes around uh, wrapping around that service. Um, And I certainly know how difficult it is for some people to receive vaccine and their anxiety and needing to manage that for them. Yeah, that's got to be, and I didn't mean to just do that there, but that's got to be frustrating. You're right. We do tend to focus on the needle and the jab itself without looking at all of the other things that are part of this and why it is healthcare professionals that do this. Absolutely. You know, I think the majority of my work in this is has very little to actually injecting the needle. That probably for most nurses takes less than five to six seconds. It happens. It's very quick. It, it is, you know, for often the interaction can be t- around 10 minutes. Uh, meeting with each person, going through all of the information, making sure that they're ready for the vaccine, answering all the questions. And as I said, you know, reducing the anxiety of the recipient. Uh, This is new for many people who've not received this vaccine. Obviously, we've never received this vaccine, but maybe haven't received a vaccine for a very long period of time, may have questions about other vaccines. Um, But also there's a lot of needle phobia. And so we really need to, you know, work to support people uh, with that anxiety that they have and make sure that they're confident uh, as they're getting the vaccine uh, in the nurse set or other healthcare professional that's giving it to them. All right. Uh, interesting. Uh, as we continue to have these questions and, and wanting this information about the, the vaccine rollout, Christine, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much. Thank you. Glad to be here today. It is now time to open Texas 100%. <laughs> That was Governor Greg Abbott announcing yesterday that Texas will reopen. That ends a statewide mask mandate and puts an end to most COVID restrictions on businesses. Let's bring in Alan Skaya, a reporter with KRLD Radio in Dallas-Fort Worth. Alan, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's one of those that that, that announcement got a bunch of applause in the, uh, during the announcement from some of the business owners there, but now business owners across the state are questioning whether it's a good idea. Right, because what is it like then as far as cases and the spread of COVID and where things are at with the virus in Texas? 
hospitalizations have dropped here. And that's one of the things the governor said yesterday is he's giving uh, areas of the state, you know, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, the Houston area, they can each make their own decision if hospitalizations go above 15%. If COVID-19 patients start using more than 15% capacity in any region for seven straight days, then the individual city and county leaders can then decide to roll back some of these uh, some of these reopenings. So he's kind of it sounds like uh, he's kind of putting uh, the 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 pressure or putting the onus then on individuals and on on other levels to to kind of navigate this moving forward. Yeah, that's right. It says like by lifting capacity restrictions, no businesses. Uh, are required to stay at 50% capacity. Any business can now open, or starting next Wednesday, they'll be open to 100% capacity. And then cities and counties that don't have, that don't hit that 15% threshold, they cannot require blanket mask ordinances. And so individual businesses can still require masks. And I've talked to a couple of small business owners who say they are going to do that, that, you know, that, that they are still... This is still a pandemic. The CDC has even said that Texas is doing the wrong thing by opening up too quickly uh, because, you know, it's only been about 10 percent of people here are vaccinated. And so even the CDC has said you shouldn't be doing this. So a lot of small business owners say they're going to keep requiring masks. But now they're worried that people are going to get upset with them. That was my next question. How has it been as far as conflict? And is there that concern now if the statewide mask mandate is gone, but a business still requires it? Is there concern there will be confrontation? Yeah, I talked to one small business owner here in Fort Worth, and that's what she's worried about. She said she's had people kind of, you know, huff and puff when she says, you remember, make sure you put your mask on. She owns a yarn shop. And so she's like, it's, it's really tough for her because people want to come in and touch and feel the yarn before they buy it. But she said, like, don't, you know, don't don't put your hands on a bunch of stuff. Um, and so she's already heard it, even with the mandate in place. And she said now, without a mandate from the state, how is she going to enforce something by herself? Yeah, and I would imagine she and a lot of other small business owners might be thinking the same thing. Yeah, like she said, her business is down. I think she said 40% over the past year. But at this point, she like the conflict just isn't worth it for her. And so she's looking at what she can do to try to prevent, you know, to try to prevent that conflict. You know, if, if someone comes in and refuses to put a mask on, would she just say, okay, like, come on in, we'll still let you in. Uh, she's having to think about that now uh, because she can't call police. Like there's no, there's no state ordinance that requires it. What about things uh, like uh, bars and restaurants? And I would imagine there, like the governor said, all businesses can reopen back to full capacity starting next Wednesday. Uh, what have they been like? And do you think that they will fill up again? Restaurants are, that's kind of a mixed bag because people do have cabin fever. Like they are anxious to get out. But a lot of the restaurants, even when we started opening to 50 and 75% capacity, they weren't hitting that because a lot of people you know, for as much as the opponents of these regulations are very loud and very vocal, uh, most people are still staying home. And so, you know, like a, a lot of the restaurants, they're still not filling up. Uh, but, but as they do, uh, I've heard some people who work at bars who say, you know, they're, they're part time, so they don't have health insurance. They're worried about, you know, what if I catch COVID and I won't be able to pay for care? And so, yeah, you are seeing, you are seeing people who work at restaurants and bars questioning whether whether they should open and it is going to be up to the restaurant owner.
Uh, and I understand as well the the temperatures. Uh, it's it's odd because I know we were just looking at Texas not too too long ago with the power outages, and we were looking at snowy conditions and very much winter conditions. Uh, but I understand in some parts of the state now things are warming up quite a quite a lot, which will likely mean more patios and people being uh, outdoors more. Do you think that will make a difference? Yeah, and there are some restaurants who are saying, okay, you know what now? Because that, that's the thing is that. You know, you, you can have the windows open at your house. It's not, you know, it's not freezing cold here anymore. We had that one week, and then the following week, it was already warmer than usual. And so, yeah, there are restaurants that are looking at expanding patio seating uh, that are, you know, looking at, okay, can we have people, can we put tables out on the sidewalk to try to expand capacity and also to make people feel safe? Uh, Dr. Fauci, who we've all uh, come to recognize uh, here in Canada, he warned states about this very thing. He warned them about easing restrictions too soon uh, and talked about having a baseline average of infections U.S.-wide rather than state by state. Uh, do you think there's anything, will, will the, the Dr. Fauci and the federal uh, politicians, will they be watching this? Could, could they do anything if things start to turn for the worse in Texas? That is a possibility. It's, it's sort of an outlier right now. But, yeah, it's not just Texas. I think Florida uh, and I think maybe uh, Georgia and one of the Carolinas, like, they're loosening restrictions, too. And so, yeah, if, if uh, Fauci or President Biden, uh, if they were to see cases start to go up again, then that is a possibility that, that there would be some sort of a federal order. I can tell you right now, though, that because Greg Abbott, the governor in Texas, he's a Republican and Biden's a Democrat, uh, that's one, one of the things the attorney general in Texas has said before is that he loved suing the Obama administration. And I'm sure the same would apply now with Joe Biden in office saying you would love to sue the Biden administration. So any kind of a federal restriction would have to go through the courts. Hmm. And at the, in the meantime, people are, are just trying to stay safe and stay healthy uh, and get vaccinated, I'm sure. Uh, Alan, just before I let you go, I'm just curious, with the statewide mask mandate, which is going to be lifted come Wednesday, uh, are people pretty well following it? Or what do you see when you're on the streets where you are? The vast majority of people are following it. You know, you're not hearing that argument from most people. Uh, most people, they put on their mask. It's gotten to the point where, you know, we're a year into this now. And so it's one of those things where if you leave your mask in the car, when you walk into the grocery store, you think, oh, it's almost like leaving your wallet in the car. It's like you just sort of you know, like the light turns on in your head and you go back to your car and go get it. So people are getting used to it. All right. To Alan Skaya, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. Thanks. Alan Skaya is a reporter with KRLD Radio in Dallas, Fort Worth, taking a look at what's happening in Texas and that edict from the governor. All businesses of any type are allowed to open 100 percent. Well, yesterday during the briefing about vaccine and about the rollout here in B.C., there was some good news for people who have really wanted to get back in to visit loved ones who are living in long-term care. Because we've had such a high immunization level in care homes and and for quality of life, that is so, so important. Um, But yes, we expect within the next, uh, before the end of this month, to be able to uh, increase visits and have families be together uh, with their loved one in care homes. Let's bring in Dan Levitt. He, excuse me, is the CEO at Tabor Village. Dan, thanks for joining us once again. Great to be here. Uh, That's, uh, I know, uh, some great news for people both living in long-term care and with loved ones in long-term care. Do you think that's, that is feasible or we are going to see an increase in visits? Well, I definitely think it'll 
it's feasible and there will be an increase in visits. And I was just talking uh, before joining you on this call, I was uh, talking to some family members about um, their situation. And there's, uh, for example, one brother who visits, oh, sorry, one brother, um, a son who visits on a regular basis and he has a, a, a handful of siblings and uh, he is an essential visitor because he feeds um, his mom, assists in feeding. And uh, um, certainly he would love to share um, that responsibility with other family members. And so I suspect um, if we can have more than one essential visitor, we'll see more people um, who are wanting to visit their family members in care. And you know, they, haven't, they haven't seen them for almost a year now. So it's time that we um, open up our doors for visitors, especially the fact that the immunization rates are high um, among staff members, amongst the residents, and amongst the essential visitors. Have you been given any more detail on this, on what it might mean as far as will we go from the one essential visitor to unlimited, or you'll have a certain number of visitors, or the times of the visits will be lengthened? Do you have any of those details? Uh, I don't have any details at this point. Um, I think if we think about a, a year ago before the restrictions were placed on long-term care, um, people could come and go as they please. There was no such thing as visiting hours. Um, there wasn't even somebody at the front desk. People did sign in and out um, more for fire safety than anything else. Um, but we'd like to get back to that point at, at some point in the future. And I guess if we want to look at what we might be expecting in the, f- in the future when things are more back to normal, if there are some changes to the restrictions that might be announced later this month, perhaps we can look to other jurisdictions where the case count is lower and the immunization rates are high. So just for example, um, in parts of Australia, say near um, the New South Wales-Victoria border, um, kind of that area between, um, you know, the map between Sydney and Melbourne, right right in the middle, it is a fairly rural area, but there is a colleague of mine who has a care home there, and they have no limits right now to the number of people that they can visit. Uh, They do have to wear a mask at all times. They have to continue to be screened on arrival, so um, the times when you can visit might be restricted still when the screening um, station is available. But that might give us a kind of some hope in, in the future that we'll see um, a whole different way of visiting our family members in care. Uh, one of the reasons given uh, that Dr. Henry talked about was the fact that we have immunized people in long-term care and they've been given uh, the Pfizer, uh, for the most part, the Pfizer vaccine, which has a very high rate of uh, efficacy to, to stop people from getting the virus. Uh, do you know if there will be rules then as far as once uh, if uh, visitors are extended or expanded to other family members, will they have to be immunized? And, and like you said, will they then also still have to wear masks and, and protective equipment when they're coming in? Well, I think the expectation of a family member or a staff member or even a resident in care to have to be vaccinated. We haven't taken that approach in, in British Columbia or, or in Canada, although other jurisdictions I think have um, taken um, that kind of a hardline approach. So I don't think we're going to be mandating it. And those people who, who can't take it right now, um, when the, I believe it's the AstraZeneca vaccine, when that one's um, available for people who have allergies, um, maybe we can expect people to be vaccinated. But we'll be encouraging it, we'll be educating people on that. So I don't think we're going to restrict people based on the vaccine, although that would make a difference. Um, and we, I would, would suspect we'll still have the, the safety measures of um, doing good hand hygiene, uh, wearing PPE. In our case, it's wearing a mask and eye protection um, it is the physical distancing still, although we, we are seeing, um, from a distance, we are seeing uh, family members finding being able to touch uh, their loved one, which makes a big difference. So I think we'll see um, some lightening of the restrictions. It won't be quite back to normal until we see the case count in the community uh, being very low.
How are things going with workers? Last time we talked, it wasn't a huge percentage of workers at your care facilities that had said that we're going to get the vaccine. Do you know how many have been vaccinated? I don't have the percent um, in front of me, but I can tell you that the vast majority of the staff since we spoke um, they have got the vaccine, and more and more are taking it. Some people are kind of taking the wait-and-see approach, just like the general public. Um, but we are seeing you know, a huge difference in the number of people that have taken the vaccine and obviously the the likelihood of an outbreak occurring in long-term care. That is one of the greatest things we heard this week from uh, the reports from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Minister Dix is um, this, the the possibility of outbreaks are such lower now because of the vaccine. And if there was an outbreak, the likelihood of um, a drastic uh, uh, impact health-wise it has changed dramatically. So that's really great news. Uh, do any of your facilities at this point have active outbreaks? No, we don't have any active outbreaks, um, thank goodness. And uh, we're not anticipating any. And because we're still maintaining all the safety measures that we um, are, you know, should be taking, and uh, we're making sure we're screening, we're doing all the PPE necessary, the safety measures. And like I said earlier, the, the vaccination has made a big difference. And we're anticipating that we'll have more information um, in the next little while about rapid testing possibly uh, being offered. We know it's being trialed, and uh, we know there's more and more information about that being accessible. So we're, we're expecting some kind of um, further um, announcement perhaps or rules around that coming in, a, in the near future. It is pretty amazing to think it wasn't that long ago you were on this program and we were talking about the fact that in some care homes, in some of your facilities, uh, we were talking about five people passing away every day, that we've gone from that to to this with the vaccinations, uh, with the the big reduction in outbreaks and fatalities. Yeah, those were some pretty dark days in November for for our community and for many long-term care homes. Um, It has turned around completely, um, obviously, it's very sad um, about the number of people um, whose lives were lost to the pandemic. And uh, we keep on thinking about them. And last week we had a, a prayer morning for them. And we're still healing. I think it'll take some time still. Um, perhaps, for instance, in some cases, it, it will never be healed. But we, it's, um, it has been, um, it's hard even to find words to describe what we went through and even to think what today looks like. Uh, what advice do you have then for family members who are hearing this, uh, whether their loved one is in one of your facilities or a different facility, uh, hearing that there will likely be a relaxing of the rules, there will be more visitation coming by the end of the month, what should they do? Well, I think they should stay tuned, to obviously, to the announcement and kind of be prepared. And um, if it was um, my parent, I'm, I might be thinking about um, if, if my sister was doing um, you know, the heavy um, lifting, if you will, on the visitation, uh, maybe it's time for me to, um, to sign up and uh, find my slot and, and find some time. Um, I, I do think we're hopefully going to see more people um, visiting long-term care. So just getting ready for that and being prepared for um, what you might expect being screened, um, thinking about the vaccine, especially if you're eligible, um, essential visitors are eligible for the vaccine, and just, I guess, getting prepared for that. Um, it's wonderful to see things have turned around um, so much, and uh, I think it would be wonderful to see more and more visitation of family members with their loved ones who lived in care. All right, Dan Levitt, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Well, earlier in the program, we heard some comments from David Eby, the minister in BC responsible for housing. These comments directed at the city council and mayor of Penticton. And right now, I'm spending a huge amount of time with my uh, colleagues in Victoria and Vancouver 
trying to grapple with and shut down encampments, to see a city council willingly flirting with establishing an, an encampment in their own city is astonishing to me. Let's bring on John Vasilaki, the mayor of Penticton. Mayor, thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you very much for having me. Where do things stand right now in this, what appears to be quite a battle over the emergency shelter and the, the actions of you and council and the housing minister? Uh, it's not a very comfortable situation that we're in. Um, and uh, I believe um, it, it uh, mostly got started by Minister Eby, um, by all the comments that he made on Global uh, last night and I believe on CBC um, uh, this morning. Uh, it's very unfortunate that the Minister of the Crown um, talks the way he does about a mayor and city council of uh, of our municipality, not only this uh, municipality, but all municipalities in the province of British Columbia. And I, I think he had the same problem uh, with, with mayor and city council in Cranbrook. So we're not the only ones that are having problems uh, with um, Minister Eby. Uh, let's talk a bit about how this started, and it has to do with a vote that you and your councillors took yesterday about the application to extend an emergency shelter. What is the issue there? Uh, the issue is that they came for, for um, not a permanent, a permanent uh, location, but it was going to be short term from uh, November the 1st of 2020 to the end of March of 2021. Um, that was uh, brought forward um, by uh, BC Housing, um, and reluctantly, uh, the city of Penticton, and I'm talking about city, mayor and city council, decided to go along with it as they came to us on the 11th hour, almost the last day um, of uh, before uh, the winter season uh, set in. So we had no choice but trying to help these folks out, and we reluctantly. Uh, pass it at that time. Now they came back uh, for an extension of a full year to keep it going without a plan being put in place for future and permanent locations for these facilities uh, within the city of Penticton or any other city in in the province as far as that goes. And without a plan, there's nothing anybody can do to make a permanent uh, situation being a lot better than what it is at the present time. Uh, by trying to force a city council to do uh, the minister's bidding, it, it's just not, it's r- ridiculous uh, to force a community to go along with what they don't wish to go along with. Have there been issues with this emergency shelter? Absolutely. Um, it, ever since they went there, it's not just a, a huge storm that erupted in that area, but it's a volcano blowing up day after day after day. Uh, and our police force, uh, our uh, fire department, they're constantly there. The ambulance constantly, and the turmoil from the residents, not only of uh, that, that facility, but the other three facilities uh, that uh, BC Housing is putting to the community, is just getting out of control. Uh, the people in Penticton live in fear. They can't come out of their house once it gets dark. Uh, and, and that's why I am here and why the city council came into power to protect our community. Uh, and we are accountable to our community as we want the province to be accountable to us 
at the same time. Uh, when you say people can't come out of their house after dark, so are, are you saying are the people that are living, the, the 42 people living in this shelter, are, are they violent or, or what are they doing? Uh, all sorts of different ways of uh, intimidating uh, the neighborhoods. Um, the, the thing is that they break in, they're trying to break into their homes. Uh, they steal their property off their, their yards. Everything has to get locked up now ever since um, this happened. I mean, and I'm not saying that those 42 people in that location are causing all this, uh, this problems. What I'm saying is because that facility is there, more and more people come to that area and all these problems are created because of that. By voting to not extend this, to shut it down as of April 1st, are you not concerned that the people living in this emergency shelter will simply move onto the streets or, or into a park? Well, that's where the uh, big, huge misunderstanding there. BC Housing always puts everybody out in those emergency shelters. They put them out at the end of March. This is not, we're not putting them on the curb, as the minister says, uh, because we voted it down. The ministry would have done it regardless. They do it at the end of, uh, of uh, March of every year. It's been, they've been doing it for years. This is not the first time. And to blame city council at the city of Penticton that we turned it down is ridiculous because that's not the case. It was a short-term period to put it in that location, and, that's, and we promised the neighborhood and the people of Penticton that was going to be short-term. That's, that's where we're coming from. And like I said, we have to be accountable to the public because that's what we promised them, and we passed it reluctantly back in October because they came to us at the 11th hour uh, to find a place to, um, to, um, to put those folks uh, in fear of the, the weather in the wintertime. We're not heartless people. Uh, we agree that those folks need help in the worst way. But by housing them, is, that's not how you stop what's happening. We have to go to the root of the problem. And the province has to invest funds into figuring out how they can help those folks from the addictions they, they have, the mental um, illness that they have, before we can actually get rid of a homelessness. That's where we have to start. And the province is not willing to go there. They just want to put up a building at a cost of many millions of dollars to house them like wild, like we were housing uh, stock uh, our animals, that's exactly what they're doing. They're housing them with no wraparound services to help those folks out. Uh, I want to play for you one more uh, short clip. This was from David Eby. He was talking uh, with Global News reporter Shelby Tom yesterday. So yes. if we're not able to use our authorities, I've checked with BC Housing. They have a thousand tents and they have a thousand sleeping bags uh, stockpiled for emergencies. And, uh, and we'll have to be moving tents and sleeping bags to Penticton uh, to respond uh-huh. to this. How do you respond that, that, to that? That's ludicrous on the part of the minister to threaten the community and fear mongering, because that's exactly what he's doing, that he's going to start a, um, a camp um, w- within the city of Penticton and bring other folks into the community uh, for housing. Uh, it's, it's just not in the best interest of this city, this province, and for a minister of the crown, crown, crown to talk the way he does 
and threatening and intimidating a community to so he can have his his way is outrageous. I, I will not stand for for it. I will not be intimidated. I, and I won't let him take advantage of our community so that he can get brownie points for whatever reason he wants to get those brownie point, points for. I, I think that a plan has to be put in place, long-term plan, not only in the city of Penticton, but other municipalities in the province of, of B.C., where there are certain areas of its, each municipality that those buildings and those sorts of accommodations can put, put into place that will make not only the folks that are using them happy, but the community as well. What, and that's where I stand. What are you going to do next? Uh, what we're going to try, we, we put uh, uh, this type of, of a situation in the hands of one of our committees, uh, a city committee, to, to find a long-term solution uh, to to the problem, find areas within the community that we may be able to put uh, such facilities in place without having conflicts with with the rest of of the residents of the community. But that should be the job of of, of the province to do, not the city of Penticton or any other community in the province. It's their job, and they're not willing to do it. Uh, do you have any more plans to speak with David Eby? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, especially the way he interprets everything we say. And uh, um, he says that the opposite of what the exp- the meanings that we had. And he said all those many, many hours that he had put in uh, w- meetings with us, we had two meetings with him. One was an hour and 10 minutes. The other one was approximately half an hour. Uh, and he also stated that um, that, he has spent more time with the city of Penticton than any other community in the province of British Columbia. That's hogwash. Uh, that, that's not the case at all. Just exaggeration after exaggeration on the comments that he makes. And it makes me really sad that we have a minister that creates problems within communities and threatens those communities to do all sorts of bad things uh, to, to create fear uh, within our taxpayer base and uh, to to make, especially when we have such a large senior population in our community, they're scared to death of what's happening here. And the, the increase in crime that we've seen in our city in in the last two and a half years since those buildings went up, it's, it's getting out of hand. We we can't cope with it. The, the police can't cope with it, and neither can our fire department and ambulance service. All right, Mayor Vasilaki, we'll have to leave it there. We'll talk to you again, uh, though, about this, I'm sure. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.